Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We'll begin our time this morning in God's Word in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1. So we kind of are beginning this series of Philippians and considering that we are the people of Christ, as Paul explains to us through this inspired and inerrant word for us. We consider this morning more how the Lord is working through us and how He desires to bring us into maturity, into growth, and I I look forward to considering these verses with you this morning. So if you found your way to Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 9, and I invite you to hear now the Word of God. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be able to approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father in heaven, we delight in you. You are our great hope and treasure. And we are richly privileged this morning to come before you through the work of Jesus Christ. We come to you now in prayer, our Father, because we need your help. We need help to hear from you, to know you to think rightly about you, both in our minds and our hearts. We need your help, Father, because we find following Jesus to be difficult and challenging and contrary to our nature that pulls us elsewhere. So we ask you, dear Lord, that this morning you would be pleased to do a good work in us for your glory and for your namesake, that you would make Hamilton Baptist Church increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. And so please come through your spirit now. We love and adore you, Father. And we ask you to help us to love you more, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, 1705, John Wesley was born the 15th child of an Anglican rector. And you know, of course, that Wesley was used profoundly by God. In fact, many even secular historians will credit the preaching of John Wesley to saving the nation of England from a revolution much like France was experiencing in that day. Of course, Wesley would not only touch England through God's grace, he would touch America as he came and preached here quite often. And he, along with George Whitfield, his college buddy and great friend, and Jonathan Edwards would be used by God to bring about the Great Awakening here in America. Man was mightily used by God. He would, in his life, travel over 250,000 miles to preach. He would deliver over 40,000 sermons. He would be uh, credited to leading 350,000 people to Christ. And on top of all of that, he had time to train personally 500 preachers. A man of incredible abundance and fruitfulness. And yet one of his closest friends said of John Wesley, despite all his labor, he thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. And I have seen him come out of his closet with the radiance of face next to shining. Of course, John Wesley is not alone amongst God's children in being people of prayer. George Mueller, the great um, man of God who cared cared for thousands of orphans in 19th century England, was known not for his ministry, but for his commitment to prayer. Charles Spurgeon, perhaps the greatest English-speaking preacher ever, would credit his ministry to what he called his heating plant, the cellar underneath the auditorium in which he preached. And if you were to attend one of the services in which Spurgeon preached to you, and you would go underneath the building down to the cellar, you would find 
find 700 people praying for that message. And he would credit the great productivity of the ministry in which God gave him to that labor of prayer. Hudson Taylor, he who had a massive impact in bringing the gospel to China, was known to fall often before a map of China calling out, God, give me China or let me die. No other than Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer who God used almost single-handedly to bring us out of theological error that had plagued the church for hundreds, if not a thousand years, would pray two hours a day, except on his really busy days when he would pray for three. And these men and women as well who were used by God all found that God would be faithful in using their ministry if they would devote themselves to calling out to Him in prayer. And they didn't just come up with this idea themselves, did they? They, they found it in the Scripture. As we see throughout Scripture, who is it that God uses? But those who recognize their weakness and their ineptitude and their humility and come to God and ask Him for help. We see it, of course, in Moses in his great prayer of confession or Hannah in her prayer for her son. We see it in David's prayer of contrition and Solomon's prayer of forgiveness or Hezekiah's prayer for life or Daniel's prayer for the captives. We see it in Jonah's prayer of repentance and and Nehemiah's prayer for help. We even see it over and over again through the life and ministry of our Lord, the, the Lord Jesus, and even that great prayer of submission in the Garden of Gethsemane. And those who would follow Christ would would understand these truths and the, the world became turned upside down within a generation of Jesus' resurrection as God's people People scattered over the known world proclaiming God, but they did so through prayer. We see it in Acts chapter 1 when 120 of the believers were gathered together. And what were they doing there? But they were praying. And in response to that, the Spirit fell upon them. And that day, 3,000 more individuals bowed their knee to King Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, when we see the church first described for us in the New Testament, the Bible says they devoted themselves to prayer. And God added daily to the number of those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 4, we see John and Peter, amongst others, they are praying. And in the response to that prayer, God shakes the building, sends His Spirit upon them, and they are able to proclaim the gospel with boldness. In Acts chapter 10, we see the Gentile Cornelius praying to God when he sends him a vision to send for Peter. At that exact same time, Peter is on his roof some hundred miles away praying when God sends him a vision to go to Cornelius. Cornelius. And we have seen, haven't we, in our study of Philippians that in Acts 16, it was Lydia who was at the place of prayer, wasn't she? When all of a sudden this man, this Jewish man, walked in and said, may I tell you about the God to whom you are praying? Even Paul and Silas, as they sat in that Philippian jail at midnight with lacerated backs and feet in stocks, were they not praying when God sent an earthquake that they might proclaim the gospel to the jailer and I trust the captives there? You see, God is pleased, isn't he? As he has told us over and over again, to build his kingdom through men and women who pray, who call out to him, who seek him for help. I think Paul, perhaps more than any other person ever to live, has been used by God to build his kingdom, to spread his fame, was a man of prayer. And he tells us in the letters he writes to the churches that he is praying for them. And I don't think he writes a single letter, perhaps. He doesn't let them know of his prayers for them. And we saw this last week, did we not? In verse 3, when he said, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. So I'm remembering you before my God, and I'm doing so with gratitude. And in verse 4, he says, in every prayer of mine for you all, always making my prayer with joy. He says, I'm praying for you, and I'm, I'm praying for you a lot. And, and that's largely what I'm doing right now because as we know, Paul's in prison now for perhaps four years. Now you could stop a prisoner from doing a lot of things, but you can't stop him from praying. And so he's going to pray. He says, I'm praying a lot. I'm praying like crazy. And when I pray, I want you to know what I'm thinking about it. When I'm praying, I'm, I'm happy and I'm thankful and I feel gratitude and, and I'm filled with joy. And he explains to them how he's praying. But he, we get here to chapter, to verse nine of chapter one and he doesn't tell us how he's praying, but he tells us what he's praying. And so here it is, we get the content of his prayer. He begins by saying, and this is my prayer. Verse 9, he's going to tell them what it is that he is praying for, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, why? I mean prayer obviously is a calling out to God to do a work. It's directed to God. So why then tell the Philippians 
what, what he's praying for. Sometimes people do this um, deliberately, right? You ever heard a sermon disguised as a prayer? Right? A thinly veiled admonition that, that right, they, they want to, want you to do something, but they'll just, rather than come out and tell you, they'll pray it, right? You ever hear a pastor pray, you know, please help the brothers in our church to get along, or please help our generous sister to help us meet budget, right? Yeah, yeah, in fact, I don't, the children are good at this, aren't they? I don't, they probably pick it up from us, but they will pray for their siblings, will they not? Loudly and by name, right? Uh, please help Joey to repent and share his toys with me, right? And so it's easy, isn't it, to, discuss, to, to see a to-do list in a prayer. Is that what Paul's doing? You say, well, you know, uh, this is what I want for you, I'm praying for you, but, but I'm really just giving you a list of things to do. I don't think so. I think he generally understands what he's praying for to be gifts in which God gives them. This is a work of God. But at the same time, I don't think they're passive in these things. I don't think we pray for the spiritual development of one another. We just kind of sit down and it floats down from heaven upon us. I think it's something that we seek after. I think Paul understands that, and so he, he's praying that God would produce this in their life, but it would also that it'd be motivating for them to actually seek this. As we consider this incredible prayer here, I think there's great instruction for us this, this morning as Christians who should be people of prayer. And I know whenever pastors talk about prayer, sometimes people are filled with guilt whenever the topic comes up with prayer. And we're filled with guilt because we intend to pray and we want to pray, but we, we so often neglect prayer. And many in this room don't have any meaningful devotion to prayer. And we hear whenever pastors bring this up, it, it's a burden on us because we know we're neglectful in this. And my hope this morning is not to burden you and it is not to fill you with guilt, but my hope is to, to equip you. My hope is to encourage you as we consider this incredible prayer in which, which God lays out for us. In fact, I think there's a couple ways in which we can learn to pray. One is by instruction. And so I could teach you or someone could teach you about what prayer is and who we pray to, why we pray in Jesus' name and, and what, what kind of requests should we bring to God. And we could think about prayer and, and, and talk about prayer and learn about the whole theology of prayer. And that's very helpful. But sometimes it's just helpful to listen to someone pray, isn't it? Sometimes it's helpful just to hear someone who's walking closely with God and say, I just want to hear you pray. I want to listen to you pray. I wonder if this is what's going on when, when Jesus is praying there and the disciples, they come and say, hey, will you, will you teach us how to pray? And he goes on, as you know, and says, when you pray, you pray like this. I wonder if they heard the intimacy between the Son of God and his Father and thought, oh, we want to know how to do that. We want that intimacy. And Jesus will let them eavesdrop on his prayers and listen in on what he is calling out for. And, and Paul uh, learns from that, perhaps. And he wants them to hear what he's praying as well, not only so that God would do this work, but so that they would learn what, what to pray for. So they would understand prayer. And you notice that what Paul prays for in these three verses is that they would grow in godliness. That they would bound in maturity. God wants us to grow. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. God is like a, a father who has a very large family. And he is delighted, Christian, that you are in that family. But he wants you to mature. He wants you not to be satisfied that you're just in the family. He wants you to grow and, and, and increase in godliness and righteousness and become more and more like Jesus. He wants you to grow up. This, this week we are, we're, we, uh, we are potty training, uh, Ezekiel. Um, and, and, well, Allegra's potty training Ezekiel. So, but potty training for us is, is a major event. It is, it is, uh, we kind of shut down everything in the house. We, we believe you potty train, you get it done in a week, and then you're done with potty training. But what that means is you don't do much cooking or laundry or cleaning. And so it kind of looks like a hurricane hit the house um, as Zeke just sits on the potty for, for hours and hours and hours a day to get this down. And I uh, hope he never listens to this sermon, by the way. But anyways, he, so we, we're working on, on training Ezekiel to, to learn this. And it's very challenging for the entire family. And the reason we do this is because we love Ezekiel. And we want this little two-year-old boy now to, to grow up. He, we want him to mature. We want him to stop acting like a baby. And actually to 
become more, more of a child and then more uh, of, a, of a young adult and then eventually adult. And this is what we're doing. You see, God wants this for us as well. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. And sometimes people come to Christ and 10 years, 20 years later, they're, they're the same maturity they were on day one. I mean, they're still wearing, if you will, diapers, spiritual diapers. And it's, it's, Paul says, I want you to mature. I want you to grow. And he begins to pray for them. And, and when we think about this prayer that he gives us, I think it's going to challenge us a, a little bit because you may think and look at this, these three verses, and say, I don't pray like that. When I do pray, it's not what I pray for. So often what we pray for are our physical comfort and a certain future. But you notice Paul's not praying for physical needs. He's praying for their spiritual development. He's focusing on their spiritual needs. This is what Paul longed for in his heart. In fact, you, you want to know what you long for. You want to know what is really high on your priority list, what, what, you, what your heart's focus is, is on. Listen to your prayers. Listen to your prayers. The, the true longing of your heart are going to come out in your requests before God. What, what is it that you want? What is it that you want God to do and, and, and work in your life? And Paul tells us that what he wants is for them to mature in their faith. So often we pray for things like health and, and jobs and safety and for your pastor to sell his home. And we, we, we ought to pray for these things. Jesus taught us that we to pray for our daily bread, didn't he? Paul cared for these things. He healed people from their sickness. He feared over Epaphroditus' illness. These things are important for us. But how much of them to have, actually have to do with the kingdom? How much of them actually have to do with God and his fame? He told us to pray that God's name would be hallowed and his will would be done and his kingdom would come and, and that we would be protected from temptation and we would forgive others as he has forgiven us. These are the things that Christ also taught us to pray for. It's what Paul models for us to pray. I think, I think more prayers are offered to keep the saints out of heaven than to help them on their journey to heaven. And the reality is I'm going to heaven. And it may be today, it may be in 60 years, but your prayers will not keep me out of there. And I pray and I hope that we would learn not just to pray that God would heal us, but that God would grow us and perfect us and mature us and help us on our way to heaven. I hope this, this passage, as we look at it in a moment, is going to inform your prayer life. That's what I'm hoping for. That you look at passages like this and say, I need to start praying like this. In fact, uh, as we mentioned, we're, we're going to, we're doing our, our pictorial directory. Right? And some of you, some of you getting your pictures taken today, you're looking good, and I'm sure that's going to be great, and, and you'll go get your pictures taken, and within a couple months we'll have this pictorial directory, and, and it's going to be helpful to see people and get to know people, and, and, but I'm hoping it'll be a ministry tool for you. I'm hoping you'll take that, and, and you'll take that, and you'll, these are the members of the church I've covenanted together to become disciples, and I'm going to pray for them. And you maybe pray through this directory once a month. You just work through it. It's a couple families every morning or every night. You just pray for them. And, and you may think, well, well, pastor, I don't, how do I don't know them? How do I know what to pray for them? I don't know what their needs are. How can I pray for them? And, and what I want you to understand is you don't need to know them in order to know their needs. The Bible tells us their needs. The Bible tells us what we need, not just the things we feel or the things we're encountering that very moment. And so I pray that you would take passages like this. You can pretty much take any passage in the Bible and turn it into a prayer for one another. And so what is it that Paul prays for? Well, you see, first of all, that he prays that they would have a growing love. You see that in verse 9? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul wants their love to grow. He wants them to become more loving. And of course, you know that love is central in the Christian faith. That it is the primary in Christianity. That God not only loves, but the Bible tells us he is love. We know from 1 John 4, 7, that love comes from God. When Jesus is asked the greatest commandments, what does he say? The greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor. Paul said these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We know from John chapter 3, it was out of love that God sent his son to redeem us. Christianity is... is 
central when it comes to love. Love is central when it comes to Christianity. This, I want you to understand, is unique to Christianity. This is, this is not found in other world religions. In fact, uh, the, the famous Bible exegete Donald Barnhouse was once um, told a story of his meeting with a Japanese girl who worked at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. One day he asked her, uh, quite just frankly, he said, are you a Christian? And she responded, no, I am a Buddhist. And she went on to say, I've heard of Jesus, but I know nothing about Jesus. And then he asked him a, her somewhat of a startling question. He said, do you love Buddha? And she was very surprised by that question. And she went on to say to him, love? I, I've never thought about love in connection with religion. He would explain that Christianity is a religion in which we love our God. We are called to love our God. And we do so because he first loved us and we love his son, Jesus Christ, who came out of love for us. And he said, you, you don't love your God and your God doesn't love you. And if you go to neighboring countries, you see temples with fierce monsters that are their deities that you have to placate them through incense and prayers and, and other types of offerings that, that Buddhists don't love Buddha and Buddha does not love Buddhists and Hindus don't love their gods and their gods do not love them. And, and even in Islam, Muslims do not particularly love Allah and there is no great affirmation in the Quran that Allah loves them. Christianity alone is this religion in which it focuses in on love, that we're loved by God and we loved him. And because we have this love relationship with God, we, we begin to love one another. We, we share that love amongst each other. And, and we need to be clear, by the way, what is love? I understand we just, we just have Valentine's Day on, on Friday and, and we, we have, I think, romanticized love. We, th we think of love as a, as a mutual affection and this, this tingling sensation that we get when we're around those we loved. And we've, we have these ridiculous caricatures on television and our movies that, that have, have, have shown us what they think love is supposed to be and gazing longly in each other's eyes and our walks along the beach, you know, hand in hand as a screen fades to black. And this is what we think love is, right? And we get all, well, the, the, our culture tells us this is what love is like. In fact, I remember when I was a freshman in college, I was dating this girl named Allegra, and she was a, a, a senior in high school, and, and we were 700 miles away. And I would get on the phone late at night and call her, and we would talk for a little bit, and we'd run out of things to say. And, and then, then she would say, okay, well, I guess that's it. You, you hang up, right? <laughs> you, I don't know if anybody did this. May just be me. No, no, no. You hang up, right? No, no, no. You hang up. And we would do that for like five minutes until we both fell asleep with a phone uh, not hung up. And this is this is back in the day when it's like a dollar fifty a minute to call long distance. Remember those days, right? And that meant what? We were in love. It also meant we were stupid, but it, it, right? It meant that we were in love, right? Because you know, we, see, love has become gooey and soft and 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 sweet, and and the Bible actually has a place for that love. And we read the book of Song of Solomon's, and there is this place for this mutual attraction in love. But predominantly, when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about you that you are so devoted to one another that you are willing to put their welfare above your own. You're willing to live for their good and not your own, and that's how you know that you're you love them. You're committed to them. And so God, according to Romans 5, 8, will love you. How? In this, he demonstrated his love, the Bible tells us. That while we were yet sinners, he gave his son to you. That's how. It's a sacrifice for your welfare. Paul would say in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Yet the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And you know what? gave himself for me. That's what the Bible talks about, love. It is a devotion to one another in which we are willing to, to give for the better of those whom we love. And Paul prays that their love would grow. It would be abounding. That their willingness to love God and one another would, would, would increase. In fact, he's going to command that they love. Look over in chapter 2 and verse 2. 
he would say, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. He says, I want you guys to be in love with one another. I want this church to love each other. Well, what's the result of that love? Look in verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, the result of this love is that we begin to consider one another's interests and not our own. We put ourselves down and we put each other's up and we're committed to each other through, because we love each other. But before Paul commands it in chapter 2, he prays for it in chapter 1 and he wants them to hear, hear them ask God for this gift in their life that they would become more loving. Which is interesting, isn't it? In light of the Philippian church. I mean, remember we studied their relationship with Paul last Sunday? And how they supported him from the very beginning, how they sacrificed for him, and how they're constantly putting Paul's welfare above their own, and they were devoted to him. If there's anybody that loved Paul, it would be this Philippian church. If there's a church that loved, that, that, um, is a church that, that, that Paul loved, it would be this church. And then now here he is writing that I pray that your love would abound more and more. Right? If I wrote you a letter and I said, I, you know, I'm really praying that you become more loving, right? you might be offended by that. Like, what are you talking about? I'm already loving. Well, not in the apostle's mind. I mean, you are loving. They are loving. But there is room to grow, isn't there? There's room to increase. He wants them to strain like Paul towards the goal of the ever-growing, overflowing willingness to put others in this community above ourselves. And so my question for you is, is do you... Do you, do you want your love to grow? Do you want to have growing love? Is this what you ask God for when you speak to Him? Will you please make me more loving? Will you please make Hamilton Baptist Church a community bound together with Bible-informed love? Or are you just kind of satisfied with where you are? Well, I'm loving, and this is how God made me, and this is where I'm supposed to be. I wonder if you ever declared yourself, you know, I want to be more loving at the end of this year than I started. I want to be more loving in 20 years than I am now. I want to love more and more people. I want to love them more and more deeply. I want my life to be a life unfolded to love God and His people. That's what Paul's praying. You ever consider that? You ever even thought about that? God, I, I need to become more loving. That's what he's praying for them. He goes on to tell us how their love grows. He says it grows through knowledge and discernment. You see that in verse 9. He says, it is my prayer that your love may, may abound more and more with knowledge. No, knowledge, he doesn't tell us of what, but we know from his other prayers, it's, he's referring to knowledge of God. He wants us to, our love to grow through our understanding and knowledge of truth and, and God. Now, I, I think this is very interesting to me, especially in the culture in which we live, in which love and truth are often pitted against each other, aren't they? Right? And, and, and if you love, you, you often don't care much about truth. And there are, there are buildings around our country with the name church on it. And they say, we're just going to accept anyone, however they are. We're not going to, I mean, we're, 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 no matter what they do or what they believe, they could just come and be part of us and be part of this church because we want to love them. That's what we want to do. We want to love them. And, and it doesn't matter what they believe. Love doesn't have to do with truth, they say. And by the way, this is how your culture evaluates religion. You, you turn on the news. You go to the academy. You go to anywhere in our culture and you want to know how your religion is good. It is good if it makes you loving. Right? If it makes you loving, good for you. We're glad that's a good religion. They never ask, is it true? Brian Williams is never going to ask, is this religion true? Your professor, they're not going to ask that. Does it, does it make you loving is what they want to know. And if it makes you loving, well, then it must be good. That's how the world evaluates religion. If you're here this morning, I want to be, and you're not a Christian, I want to be very clear to you that we follow Christ not because it is good for us, though it is. We follow Christ not because it's helpful or it works for us. We follow Christ because we believe what He said and who He is is true. We, in fact, have the audacity to believe that Christianity has the exclusive claim to truth. 
And anything that denies what is in God's word is not true. It is a lie. This is a religion based upon truth. And it is that truth, as we understand who God is and what He has done, that is going to produce love in our hearts as we consider our great and glorious God. Now, by the way, the opposite is true. You have some people who are so concerned with truth in the precision of their minute theological details that if you differ with them in the slightest degree, then they have no love for you whatsoever. And so you can pervert this either way that you want. The Bible says if you know God more, if you understand who He is, if you are more aware of His glorious perfections, His beautiful majesty, His holiness and righteousness, the mercy and grace and love that He has given you at an infinite cost to Himself, it will cause you to love Him. It will cause your heart to soar up to Him. And you think about who He is, you will not be able to resist a desire to put your affection upon Him. And the more that you love Him, and the more that you understand He loves you and loves everyone else, the more you will be molded by that, and the more you will go off and love others. It's all built up by His truth, though. This is why we gather together weekly, isn't it? And we go verse by verse and phrase by phrase, not simply because we want to fill our minds. It's not, it doesn't end there. He does, God is not interested in providing you with information. He wants your transformation. He wants that information to take hold of your life and to form you into the image of Christ as you become more and more loving as you know Him. And so is why we study God's Word and why we gather together in community groups throughout the week and, and apply His Word in our life and why we meet one-on-one together and, and read over God's Word and why we study the Word in Sunday school class and in our quiet times in the morning because we want to become more like Jesus. We want our love to grow and abound. It is a knowledgeable love. But it's just not that. It's a discerning love. You see that at the end of verse 9? He says, not only with knowledge, but all discernment. And so knowledge is not enough. We need to have discernment. In other words, we need to know how to love. It's not always easy to know how to love. Sometimes it's hard to know how to apply love in that particular situation. Right? When, when, for instance, how do you, how do you love a disobedient child? Right? Your child's juggling knives again. Right? <laughs> He's doing swan dives off the top bunk onto his sister again. Right? How do you love that child? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible says you pull down their pants and take your hand and apply pressure repeatedly to their backside. Right? That's what it says. He who hates his child spares the rod, the Bible says. Somehow there's a connection between the backside and the heart. In fact, uh, uh, we have a ritual in our home. Whenever we discipline our child, we, we say, Daddy loves you, and therefore, Daddy's going to spank you. And, and one of my child has now got to the age where they actually put these, these propositional truths together and try to figure out how they go together. And he actually said, hold on a second, Dad. Um, I don't, I've heard this for all my life, but I don't feel loved when you spank me. And so I thought it was a great opportunity to, to open God's word together. And, and we talked about how the Bible says that folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. That somehow, that in order to get this folly, I want to get the folly out of your heart, son. I love you. And you don't want that folly in your heart. It's going to bring ruin and trouble upon you. And one, one way to get it out of that heart is to apply this discipline to you. It's what God tells us. And we're able to explain that, that sometimes the application of love takes a great deal of discernment. I mean, think about what Jesus did. I mean, how many times is he saying, you have little faith, you have little faith. Come on, guys, where's your faith? And and if we don't know better, we think, well, that doesn't sound very loving. I mean, relax, Jesus, come on. I mean, don't you love these people? The reality is he does love them and he is loving them the right way. And sometimes that means pushing on people a little bit. And this love takes discernment. I don't know how many churches have been ripped apart in these factions, not because one faction loves Jesus and the other faction loves the devil. No, they, they both love Jesus. They just lack discernment in how to try to apply love in that particular situation. In fact, I think the greatest example of discerning love is when, the Father loved us because who among us would have thought the best way for a holy God to love us as sinful people is to have His perfect Son murdered? Right? Would you have come up with that? Would that have been your idea? 
well, why don't we send your son to the earth and we could torture him and we could, uh, you could abandon him and we could nail him to the cross in a big old bloody, gruesome mess and that's how you can love us. But you see, God had a discerning love. He knew how to reach us and He did so through Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we, we would invite you to consider this kind of love. We think God loves us not because He makes our life pleasant. Sometimes He makes our life the opposite of pleasant. Sometimes He brings us into hard and painful circumstances. We believe God loves us because He sent His Son to die for us. We who rebelled against Him and turned our back upon Him, He has paid for all of our debt upon the death of Christ, our substitute, and three days later He rose from the dead. That is, that is a demonstration of love. I would love to talk to you about that if you would like to consider how is it that the death of His Son is loving to us. This is how God has loved us. And Paul is praying for them that their love would grow and grow and it would be, it would grow with knowledge and discernment. And the picture I have, maybe this can help you, is that picture love as a tree, if you will. Love, we'll just call it the love tree, okay? Is that okay? Um, by the way, I don't know if you know, you hired a California hippie as your pastor, okay? So, <laughs> too late now, I've hugged a couple trees in my day and so we'll just call it the love tree, right? And you want, how do I grow the love tree? Well, you water it and you fertilize it with the knowledge of God. How do I get it to go straight? Well, with discernment. Discernment's the stake. Discernment is the pruning of that tree in order that it might begin to produce fruit. And so knowing God is going to make that tree grow and discernment is going to make it grow straight and fruitful. And Paul goes on to explain three different kinds of fruit that this growing love will produce in our lives. You notice that he says that growing love produces excellent desires. Look there in verse 10 when he says, so that you may approve what is excellent. See that little so that? We call that a purpose clause. And those are important when you're reading the Bible. Whenever you see a so that, it's, um, it's we call it a hina clause. It's the Greek word hina. But it gives us the purpose for what he just said. So he just said something. He wants something to happen. And then he says, so that. And that tells us why he wants it to happen. So he wants our love to abound more and more with knowledge and truth. Why? So that, here's the purpose, that your, you were, your love would produce these excellent desires in you. That you would approve what is excellent. That you would find delight in that which is wonderful, that your heart will be changed and your taste will be changed and you would delight in wonderful and good things. He's not saying that so you can distinguish between good and bad. That's easy. You don't need growing love to know that, that, uh, that charity is good and child abuse is bad, right? We all understand that whether we're Christian or not. What he's saying is that your heart will be transformed, that you will be able to delight in that which is excellent, the best, not just simply that which is good, but that which is best, that you will pursue the best habits and have the best aspirations and dreams that you would develop a taste for that which God desires, which is wonderful for you. That he would, this love would transform you. The more you love, the more you're going to be set free from all your own desires and the more you're going to be able to desire the things in which God desires and God considers excellent and praiseworthy and noble. This, I think, is very, very rare. I think many people don't ever consider what they desire. They just want to fulfill their desires. It's very rare for people to say, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't desire, have this desire. Maybe I shouldn't want that. Maybe I shouldn't long for that. I don't think people do that in our culture. I think people just have the desires and they just go for them. They just seek after them. They just fulfill them. It reminds me of the, the story of when the airplane pilot came over the loudspeaker. Perhaps you, you heard this, that he said, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that we've lost all of our instrumentation and we have no idea where we are. The good news is that we have a good tailwind and we're making great time. I think people live their lives that way, don't they? I mean, they don't know where they're going. They're just full of busy and activity. They don't know how their children are going to turn out or how their marriage is going to turn out or how their finance is going to turn out or how they're going to turn out. But they just fill their life with activity and busyness with no, with no thought as to actually, where am I going? Is this good? If they have it, they just, they have desire, they just, they just seek it. And what the Bible is saying is that the more we grow in love of God and the more we grow in love with one another, the more our hearts and tastes are going to change to that which God considers to be excellent. It's going to transform our, our delights. 
Many people delight in, in, in good things. I mean, we, we like sunsets and a good meal and a cup of coffee and security and comfort and, and, and you know, ease. And we, we like our spouses. We, we, we like all those things. We delight in them. They're not bad. But what happens when those things become primary in our life and we set our hearts on them? We begin to do their bidding. We begin to organize our life around these delights. So if, if your heart is set on financial security, you're going to organize your life around that. It's going to determine the job you take. It's going to determine how you spend your money and how you save and, and your future. And it's going to be occupying your mind. And what that is going to become, it's going to become a God to you. You're going to begin to focus your heart on it and direct your activity to fulfill that desire. Contemplate it with your mind. You begin to worship it. And what we worship is going to determine how we live. We live for what we worship. We li- what we worship determines the life we live. You live the way you live because you have the loves you love, it has been said. And what the Bible is telling us is that God is willing to change what you love, change what you delight in. See, Paul's praying that, not that God would straighten out their lives, that lives would become easy and pleasant. He's praying that God would straighten out their loves, their appetites, their delights, and change their life. Saying that this, this love tree, if you will, when watered by the knowledge of God and directed by discernment, begins to produce a fruit of new delights and new tastes that conform with God. Well, he goes on and says there's a second, a second fruit that it bears. If we read on in verse 10, he says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, a growing love will produce an authentic life in you. He says it will produce blamelessness in you. That's a reference to your outward behavior. It literally means without stumbling. But it's not a reference to you stumbling. It's a reference to you causing other people to stumble. And the more you grow in love, the more you are willing to put other people's interests above your own for their good, the more you're going to live a life in which doesn't trip people up. It doesn't, doesn't cause them offense. It doesn't get them bent out of shape when you're with them. The more, the more you become blameless, and not only blameless, but he goes on, and says, the more you will become pure. Now, interestingly enough, there's a number of words he could have used for pure, but he used a specific word that means sincere, that, that you're going to become a sincere person, that you really care for people. Right? You, there's, no, there's no mask. What you see is what you get. You grow in love and you consider other people's interests before your own. You, you don't care about what people think about you. That that interest, that desire fades away. All you become interested in is how I could be a blessing to other people. And you know people that struggle in sincerity, right? People that are all plastic and fabricated and all they want to do is make you think well of them. In fact, I I think other than unbelief, hypocrisy is is probably the most condemned sin in Jesus' life. He had no time for this lack of sincerity. The Bible is saying that, that God will produce sincerity in our life, will produce this fruit. Don't you love people who are sincere, who, who look you in the eye and say, how are you doing? And, and they really want to know. I mean, they're really interested in your life. They're really concerned about you. In fact, in Paul's day, they, they used to uh, make pots in Paul's day, and, and sometimes they would get cracked when they, fought, when they were in the fire. And those people who wanted to sell the cracked pots would cover it with wax. Cover that crack with wax. And you couldn't see it. They would paint over the wax. And you get home, you put your hot liquid in there, the wax would melt, and you have a, a useless pot. Right? I think a lot of people live that way. I, I think a lot of people are covering up the cracks in their life with church attendance, and they wear neckties on Sunday mornings, and they have spiritual talk, and, and they, they, everything looks okay when they're around other people, and they want you to think highly of them, that they got their whole life in order. But when they're at home, they're just totally different. Just totally different. When they're at work, they're thinking totally different. When they're all by themselves, they're not thinking of the things you might think they're thinking of. They're totally different. They have wax covering all their cracks in their life. And the Bible says if we grow in love, we're, we're going to move beyond that. In fact, the reputable pottery dealers would actually mark their, their pots on the bottom uh, with the phrase, uh, sincera, which means without wax, which is, of course, where we get the word sincere. Sincere literally means without wax, covering up those cracks in our lives. Paul says that you become a pure, sincere person. You're really interested in other people. I think this is so incredibly rare in our day. I mean, you go try, you go out and be sincere this week. Right? I think I'm, I'm going, God, will you help me to be sincere and pure? And you, you go to the bank or the, 
coffee shop or the restaurant and look at your waitress and say, how are you doing? And she'll tell you, I'm doing fine, I'm doing good. And then you push a little bit on that. You say, no, really, how, how are you doing? Are you okay today? How's your, how's your day going? And, and she will look at you like you're a stalker. Right? And she, she will like, what in the world is going on here? You say, no, I just want to pray for you. you say, well, can I pray for you today? I just really want you to have a good day. That's so rare. People aren't interested. I mean, we're like, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. And then, all right, see you next week. And who was that? Oh, that was my best friend, right? And we're just not diving deep in our lives. Paul says this love is going to grow and it's going to produce this sincerity. And it's all for the day of Christ, evidently, that, that when Jesus comes with, with that, that, the eyes blazing, the Bible says, we won't cringe and we won't squirm under his searching gaze, that we will be ready for his return. We be prepared for the Lord. The last fruit that you see that it will produce in our life, this growing love, this love tree is going to produce an abundant fruitfulness in your life. Look at verse 11. He says we're filled with the fruit of righteousness uh, that, that will become more righteous. If, if, if being pure and blameless means that sin is diminishing from our life, we don't have hypocrisy and we're not causing people to stumble, well then verse 11 is saying that righteousness is growing in our life. That we actually begin to become more and more like Jesus and we're filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and meekness and self-control and, and, and we're, we, we grow and become more and more like Jesus. And this is what Paul's praying, that they would become like Christ. I mean, just think about this prayer. He says, I want your growing love to be informed with the knowledge of God and directed by discernment that God will give you this gift in order to enable you to delight in that which is excellent and reflect Jesus' purity and abound in righteousness. He wants this transformation in their life. And you think, well, how is this going to happen? Is God going to turn these self-focused people into those who are going to resemble Christ and as they love one another? Well, the answer is here at the end of verse 11 when he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through Christ. He's the answer. That this righteousness is going to be produced through our, our attachment, our union, our faith, our following of, of Jesus. In fact, this is the seventh time now in 11 verses that he has mentioned the name of Jesus. In verse 1, he said that we are servants of Jesus to the saints in Jesus because of the grace in Jesus. And in next week, God willing, we're going to see that three times. He says, I, want to, I just want to proclaim Jesus, proclaim Jesus. I want to proclaim Jesus. He will go on and say later on that to live is Christ. And then he'll say, I want to depart and be with Christ. And then he says, I hope that you glory in Christ. And then he goes on to say that you should live a life worthy of Christ. And then he says, I want you to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that's all chapter one. He's all about Jesus. He wants you to be attached and united with Christ. He'll go on to say that he will give up everything that he has accomplished if he could have one, one great treasure, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, Jesus brings about this transformation. He himself would say in John 15, in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we're told that through him, we draw life through him, and we become transformed by him. You understand, Christian, that Jesus is not simply your savior. He did not simply come just so he could punch your ticket to heaven and take away your sin. He has come, and he has redeemed you in order to change you, in order to transform you, in order to mold you to be a reflection of what he is like, that you would love like he likes, loves, and that you would live like he lives, and you'll be righteous like he is righteous and he is praying that this would take place that their hearts would spring out love and their mouths would spring out righteousness and sincerity would be seen in their lives don't you want this for Hamilton Baptist Church that we would be a community like this that our love is just abounding and growing for one another and we don't aren't thinking about what we want but how can I be a blessing to others and propel each other in righteousness and in love for Jesus that we wouldn't simply live as comfortable easy Americans who happen to like the people in this room but that we would be so transformed that we would be like Christ himself not not simply so we could be good moral people. It's not because character counts, you understand, that we want to become like this. It's not simply to be virtuous and good. It is, as the apostle says, to the glory and praise of God. 
that we would be transformed so God can get praised. God wants to be praised. He wants to be glorified. He wants your life to be a doxology to him. And Paul from prison in Rome looks at Philippi and says, they don't know Jesus there. They don't know Jesus in Philippi. And there is a small group of Christians there, Father, and I'm praying that you would transform them in such a way that they would become, as they live life to with one another, and they use the gifts in which the Spirit has given them, that they would become a visible and credible display to the transforming power of the gospel through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I tell you this morning, they don't know Jesus out there. They don't know Jesus in Loudoun County. And we do. But if we live just like them, they won't look at Jesus. We need to be changed, church. We need our love to grow that we might become a credible and visible display that we have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that God may be praised in our neighborhood, in our neighbors, and even to the nations. God help us. Father, we want to be different. What if, Father, you would transform us that we would just shine the beauty and majesty of Christ not to build up our reputation but to build up His. And I don't know, Father, how this works in all the aspects. I don't know how to apply this. I'm struggling, Father. but I just know you want more for us. You want more transformation. You want more Christ-likeness. So I'm asking you, I'm begging you, please help us. Help us this week and this month and the next year and the next 10 years that we would not simply be people who are living American lives who happen to love Jesus but that we would be people who have given Christ everything and are living for him and for his glory. I think you've done enough for us. And I don't know why in my heart, when I think about the cross and the resurrection, the love in which you have shared to this man who lived in blatant rebellion to you for 20 years, I don't know why I'm not moved like I ought to be. Please help me, Father. Help this church who have heard the gospel over and over and over again, not just just say, oh, yeah, okay. But help us to be changed by it, by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.